millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted. My name's Tony Benjamin from Voice of the Martyrs Australia. And today I have Amero Aziz, who's one of our field operatives in the Middle East. He's based in Jordan. Uh, thank you for joining us, Amero. Tony, it's a pleasure for me to be here, even in the middle of this world crisis with the COVID-19. We can be together and keep not only as a family in Christ, but uh, serving together, serving the suffering church. Thank you, Romero. Um, I would like to start by asking you, how big a problem is persecution of Christians in the Middle East at the moment? Well, persecution here, it started since the beginning of the church. In fact, uh, since the beginning when the disciples, they spread all over the region, the church was being persecuted. And it started here with the persecution. It keeps like this even today. Today we have persecution coming from the governments. Today we have persecution coming from the communities and the religious groups. Today we have persecution coming from the family. People here, uh, Christians, it doesn't matter if they are from historical churches or if they are from Muslim backgrounds, they will suffer persecution. It's one of the main thing, things. If you are a believer here, you will suffer persecution, Tony. Wow. So what is meant by persecution and, and what are the types of behaviors that are exhibited against Christians? Okay. So it all depends on where you are and the context, the background from if you are a Christian coming from a Christian family or if you are a Muslim coming to faith, this will kind of lead the way you will be persecuted here. It, usually if you are a Christian, you will suffer persecution from the authorities and from the government because of the restrictions they will impose. Most of the countries here, they implement the Sharia law. So for example, in Jordan, uh, uh, Christians, they cannot share their faith with Muslims. They cannot distribute literature. They cannot um, do public gatherings that are not inside approved uh, official uh, places like the churches. And Jordan has only, for example, 80 evangelical churches, so it's a small evangelical community in the country. So if you are coming from a Christian background, you will face these restrictions. And of course, if you disobey the law, then you will suffer persecution from the authorities. If you are sharing the faith with other communities like Muslims, they can also persecute you because not only they are trying to follow the, the rules of uh, the country, but also because of their own faith that will kind of lead them to discrimination, to persecution. So if you are born a Christian, a, a, when you are at school, your Muslim friends, they will discriminate you. You will have to memorize the Quran. Even if you are in the public schools and you are Christian, you have to do it. And then you'll be suffering when you find your uh, job and when you work in universities. So Christians that come from Christian backgrounds, they will always be facing uh, persecution from authorities and also from the community because they're following the, their faith. If you are coming from a Muslim background, then the things are even worse because uh, first you are disobeying the law. So 
you will be you can be arrested uh and personally i know so many um muslim background believers that they were beaten uh, by the authorities they were taken to court because they uh, wanted to follow jesus and they they had processes on them they lost their jobs because the authorities uh, made uh, several circumstances to lead them to lose their jobs and to be kicked out of their families by the pressure their, the authorities will make on them. Also, they will suffer from their family relatives and even sometimes they will be beaten from them, like from their parents, from their brothers and sisters, cousins. And I could share so many stories of, of these brothers and sisters suffering like that. Sometimes they will suffer from the community itself. Maybe the family will be a little bit more open, but the neighbors or the religious leaders from their mosques and communities, they will uh, persecute them. They will denounce them to the authorities and then they will suffer persecution from them. Or sometimes, depending on the place they are, like for example, um, if they are located in very restricted communities, we, we do have work all over the region. So for example, if you are um, Lebanese, a Muslim background living in a Hezbollah neighborhood, and I had the privilege of knowing some of them, they will suffer severe persecution from, from Hezbollah. If they are coming, for example, from uh, Iraq, from a um, place that the Shia militia is controlling the region, so the Shia militia will persecute them. One of my first um, Muslim converts that I had the privilege to disciple was my first interpreter when I came years ago to live here in the region. He was my first servant in the ministry. When he came to faith, the Shia militia uh, in uh, his region in Iraq, they persecuted him, they beaten him. He had to keep hiding himself for about one year because they were trying to kill him. And then he fled and uh, came to Jordan because of safety. So if they're in this type of neighborhood controlled by these Islamists, by these Islamic radical groups, then persecution will be even more severe. And sometimes they can even be killed. And there are so many uh, stories all over the region of people coming to faith that they were killed by these groups. So that's kind of uh, how things happen here. It all depends on the region, on the country and on the region they are, even inside a country. Like uh, uh, persecution depends and, and it's so different from place to place. So it's not uniform, but usually comes from the family, comes from the, as I said, the community and comes from the government. Also, there is one type of persecution that I didn't mention here. That is the persecution from inside. So some people, they don't know, but even inside Christianity here, unfortunately, uh, persecution happens because some of the historical churches here in this region, they are still very against um, evangelicals. So if you are uh, evangelical Christian in an orthodox uh, context, you will also suffer persecution from the orthodox community. And uh, this persecution will come uh, from the priests sometimes, and uh, in other times they will they will come from the community themselves, making the analysis when the evangelicals they start preaching the gospel uh, to Muslims or even to uh, other uh, Christians that are nominal Christians. Of course, there are many many Christians here coming from these historical churches. They are uh, true believers and they love Jesus. But unfortunately, this also happens. There is a persecution coming from inside. Wow. 
So could you give me one or two examples of current situations that you've had to deal with um, regarding persecution within the people that you guys are assisting at the moment? Yes. I want to share uh, one beautiful testimony. There is one young man that we led to Christ in 2015, in June. I will call him Joseph. And this uh, young man, he really, he was years before curious about Christianity and and he at university because he's a refugee, but coming here to this country um, in a period where refugees could study. So he did architecture and he saw how Christians, they were dealing with girls and he was so curious with that. And he went to a mosque to ask um, to the chef, to the leader of that mosque about uh, why Christians, they were so different and especially why they would treat girls in this different way. He was really curious. And that man, he was mad at him and uh, spelled him from the mosque and denounced him to the police saying he was a convert, but he was not. And that he was uh, making proselytism. He was sharing Christian faith to other Muslims, but he was not, he was still a Muslim. And this young man, he was arrested. He was for days in prison. And because of that, his family had to use all their money to um, help him to go out of the, that jail. And he was released and they became very liberal. For years, they were very liberal. And then, but too much fear, especially Joseph. He didn't want it to make any questions again. And then this young man, after years of this incident, he decided to go to a church. He went, but when he went there to ask the questions to the pastor, it happened that in 2015, that pastor... Uh, from that church, a few days before he was arrested and deported from the country. Even his co-pastor, an Egyptian pastor, was also in prison and deported. And the people from the church, they were too much afraid. But he came to ask one elderly, from um, one man from the church, that it happened to be the owner of the building of my church, the church I, the building I rent for our community. So this man told him, I will not answer you any questions go to this village, that's my village, and speak with these people. It was me and a, a Jordanian pastor. And then uh, they will help you to uh, have your questions um, answered. And he came, we spoke with him. He had many uh, deep questions. And by the end of, of our time with him, he was crying and he gave his life to Jesus. It was really beautiful. So he, this young man, for, we baptized him. He became of, uh, one of our servants in the church and in the ministry. Um, Personally, I led his discipleship, and he was—he became part of my family. And for years, he was serving with us faithfully. And then his father discovered. His father uh, beat him severely with a piece that you used to unscrew um, these gas bottles. So a huge piece of metal. He hit him really hard. Uh, he had several bruises and black spots all over his body. He took his car, and then he kicked him out of the house. And for about one year, he was really depressed because uh, the family made an announcement on Facebook and I have the letter saying that anyone that could, uh, could find him, they could kill him. So we put him on a safe house and uh, Joseph was for, with us for this whole year, just praying and uh, we were supporting him as a ministry. We paying this place that he was, paying his food and taking care of him. 
and uh, he couldn't work anymore. He had to be hiding himself because of everything going on. And then we received some good news uh, not uh, too long ago. Uh, his sister wanted to uh, meet him and then we made a way for them to be together. And the sister said that she wanted to hear about this faith that's led him to be for almost one year far from the family. She was curious. So she had a meeting with us. Uh, we asked, uh, we answered some of her questions and the sister gave her life to Jesus. Then uh, the mother uh, called him and wanted to meet him. And then it was the same. She had some questions and we answered the questions and the mother gave the life to Jesus. And not too far ago, even in the middle of all this crisis, uh, starting, the father also uh, called him and asked him to go back home and also to ask forgiveness of everything that he did and said that he was he repented of, of beating him and everything and he was ashamed of what he did and he was ashamed of meeting with me and uh, Pastor Philip, this Jordanian pastor but at one point he, he met us and he gave his life to Jesus so this family now even in the middle of this crisis both Joseph, his sister, his mother and the father they are growing their faith they're uh, being discipled and and they cannot gather um as they were gathering with us before but we are meeting them online and of course they are in a very sensitive situation because the letter was was public so everyone knows that joseph gave his life to jesus so and now all the family they have to uh, keep their faith in secret but even in the middle of this situation we are discipling them and we are meeting them. So I would say it's been hard. Persecution is still happening. Um, it, this family is, is one of these cases. They cannot share with other relatives what is going on because everyone knows that Joseph came to Christ, but uh, God is at work. And it's beautiful to see even in the middle of this situation, he's doing these amazing things. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful story. When I uh, when I when I visited um, Jordan not too long ago, we met a family there, and uh, they had to escape Iraq with uh, them and twelve or eleven other families managed to escape Iraq just with what they had. And this poor lady was uh, suffering from cancer, from breast cancer. Um, can you give me an update on her condition? Because I know she was um, doing some chemotherapy. It cost. Uh, exorbitant amount of money to get chemotherapy done, especially for somebody that's a refugee and they cannot work. In. Um, do you have an update on that story uh, for us? Yes. She's still uh, with the same situation. Unfortunately, uh, we had a close down here in Jordan, a very severe one since the end, uh, by the end of February, authorities here, they closed down everything. And in the beginning of March, we, we were in an almost complete curfew for uh, almost two weeks. So hospitals um, uh, everywhere, uh, they were closing clinics. Uh, some, of, uh, some of the hospitals were closed, just some main ones were open and with uh, several limitations. Also here, we are outside um, the capital. We are in another state. So with this situation with COVID-19, no one could go to other states. 
uh, without permission. So this lady and several other uh, sick people from our community, they couldn't go to the these open hospitals in Amman, uh, with the exception of very um, uh, emergency cases. So if they were really, really, really in bad situation, they could go, but no um, exams or no of uh, typical follow-up happening. So the authorities, they created a, a local committee with some specific uh, doctors that they could go to the houses and visit these families. So this family and a few others, they were receiving here and there uh, some doctors coming to their houses, but they mm. could not go to Amman. They could not keep the general follow-up or treatments that they were doing. So unfortunately, wow. Uh, this affected this family, affected others, and even some of our workers here. We have a family that they are uh, serving with us, and the lady is pregnant of twins. And, um, and even her, she had twice tried to go to the doctor, and the police didn't allow it. Uh, so unfortunately, we had these things happening here. But uh, pray that we can have everything normal. We hope maybe in the next two weeks, they will open the transit between states. This is still not happening. Uh, even today, I went to take my son to take a vaccine in the clinic here. The public clinic was closed, so they are still not open. They were saying they would be open from today. They, it was closed. So that's kind of the situation for that family and for all the other sick people that as a church we are dealing with. Thank you for sharing that, Omero. I just wanted to ask you another question. You know, with persecution that people are facing in the Middle East, are there early warning signs that precede that persecution of Christians and things that they can look out for just to give them some idea that something is going to happen here? Yes, definitely. And historically, uh, we see in some of the countries here in the region, and as I said, persecution, it changes so much in details regarding where you are here in the Middle East, but you can see signs like the, specifically you will see, for example, in Iraq, movements of the militias. So uh, when the war started in 2003, Christians in Iraq, they, they had kind of a, a certain freedom. Of course, there was persecution, especially for those coming from a Muslim background, the Christian community, they enjoyed some freedom. But when the war started and the government kind of lost control, the militias, they started to move all over the country. And that's when the persecution became even harder for the Christian community. And if you see 2005, 2006, 2007, you see it was the worst period for uh, Christians in, in the uh, Nineveh clans. Uh, because the militias, they were so hard on them. They were kidnapping, they were killing by hundreds of the Christians living in those villages. And then we see another huge wave, of course, of specifically terrorism when ISIS comes to that area. And they were advancing village by village. And when they came to Mosul and they started to take control of the Christians village, Christian villages around, they, they were giving... Um, deadlines for the families. So they would say that they would have, in the beginning, some of the places they would have like 24 hours to make their decision. Some other places they would have about a month to make their decisions. If they would stay and pay uh, the jizya, the tax for uh, the Christians to be able to live in a 
caliphate's territory, like a, a, a territory controlled by these Islamists and these terrorist groups, or if they would uh, just leave and uh, quit everything that they had, like their possessions, their houses, their vehicles, their money and everything. As you may know, like about 125,000 Christians, they were living in Mosul and the, and the uh, villages around in the Nineveh plains. And majority of the Christians, they decided to uh, leave everything behind, stay with Jesus and not deny their faith. And then they lost everything. So many of them, they came to Jordan, to Lebanon, to Turkey as refugees. And they started to suffer also as refugees under so uh, hard conditions. I would say here, uh, now there is a movement happening in our region because, because of the Arab Spring and also because of what happened with ISIS, there was this beautiful open window uh, that people they were so open coming to Christ and in the middle of, of the refugee crisis, even the uh, Islamic kingdoms like Jordan and the uh, Islamic countries around, they were kind of open because the need was so big that missionaries could work and uh, churches could work and people were coming by thousands to faith during the last few years. But in the last year, there is this trend of uh, closure. So the authorities, they are starting to um, deport missionaries, to close down churches, to stop some, some types of social work, to control the work of Christian communities. So we are seeing already the signs of the closure. So the persecution is, is now happening uh, more and more in all the different countries here, uh, Jordan and Iraq, Turkey, we are seeing cases of even missionaries being killed. Like there was a recent case in uh, Turkey some, some a couple months ago. So situation is, is closing down a little bit. And specifically with the, the COVID-19, the uh, countries here are using this time to control media, to control even more churches and the uh, social workers. So we are seeing this huge trend now of uh, this window that was open uh, before to close down, unfortunately. That was one of the questions I was actually going to ask you is um, what has been the effect of COVID-19 on persecuted Christians in the Middle East? Yeah, that's a very good question. And uh, it's two sides of this story. So the first side is that as people are uh, in their homes now more than ever, uh, there is a an opportunity that is unique to outreach them through uh, social media and through online ways as never before. And I've heard from many workers in the region that many uh, Muslims are coming to Christ, even in close countries like from the Gulf, like Saudi Arab, like Qatar, Yemen, Bahrain, um, Emirate, um, uh, United Arab um, countries, and the Emirates, like. These places, even here in Jordan and Iraq, we are seeing this movement of Muslims coming to Christ because they are online now as never before. So they are watching YouTube videos that are, are made for them. They are watching preachings from several main um, MBBs preaching from Western countries. There are, there are several groups on Facebook and, and people outreaching them. So there is this movement 
uh, of people coming to Christ because they are in their houses, they're online and going to these social medias. And God is so good that he's working in their lives as never before. So this is, this is a beautiful site. And we received here as a ministry some uh, already messages because we are doing our church service online. And, and we were able even to visit people uh, during the quarantine here in our region that they asked us to visit after they watched our online services. So this is amazing. This is something beautiful that is happening. But by other hand, uh, if you consider persecution, um, because uh, the crisis allows the governments to make some very severe actions to control uh, the, the crisis, this is uh, giving them the chance to control not only the crisis itself, but also other things that before they couldn't do. So, for example, Jordan installed the martial law uh, by the beginning of March, and we are already in two months with martial law. So they control who is on the street, who are on the streets. They control uh, all types of medias, and even they arrested several people because they were posting rumors on the internet uh, regarding the uh, COVID-19. So, so that shows us the type of control uh, they are doing right now. And this is happening all over. So the countries around here, they are also using this time to control communications and to control uh, the uh, actions of uh, main key preachers that they have filed on the secret on their secret polices and this is is being very difficult because it, again it's giving them the power to do things that before they would not have the power to do uh, without kind of uh, um, hurting some human rights or some um, international laws so we are seeing this movement of persecution growing, this movement of control growing, and this is something that they wanted to do and they couldn't. So churches are closed and uh, pro social projects are closed. Public gatherings are not being permitted. Uh, for example, here, they can, people can only gather up to 10 people. If they are more than 10, the government can come and arrest them. Uh, so it's really hard. Uh, because it's preventing also all types of ministry. The same time is giving the chance to outreach people online like never before. We are being controlled as never before. Just a question, Amira. What can Christians who are listening to this interview do about persecution in the Middle East? What can we do? Sitting in the West, what can we do? Yeah, first to pray. And uh, God, he listens to faithful brothers and sisters there in Australia and all over the world that are praying for the churches, the missionaries, pastors and leaders, for believers all over the region, Muslim converts, difficult situations, and, and Muslim converts preaching the gospel. If they pray for us now, I believe God will keep using us and even more in the middle of our difficult circumstances here. So everything for me starts with prayer. Prayer, it's something that everyone can do. And uh, this is a good moment for, for Australian brothers and sisters to start praying specifically and constantly for us here as we need. Second, 
uh, to use wisely the time that maybe God is giving to some of them staying at home to understand better what is going on, to be really conscious of, of the persecution and the situation here. Because also sometimes our prayers are so general, like God uh, bless the church in, in, the, in Iraq. But the church in Iraq is so complex and so and there are so many people and, and they are they have a face, they have they have names, they have stories. So it's the time for also the church to get to know more. So I would challenge people that are listening to us now, Tony, to go to uh, the Voice of the Martyrs Australia website and to read all the news and to get the content and the updates and to get to know better the situation, not only from what people see on the, the news or, or on the media, but on, on organizations like ours, that they can uh, provide uh, stories so people can pray individually and in, in, in objectively for people that are in need right now. So with it, it get this content now, it's very important. And third, uh, contribution. Like this is a, a very difficult moment for everyone, of course, for people that are not working in Australia or people that are not working here in the Middle East. But can you imagine for persecuted Christians that maybe they lost their jobs because of their faith and they cannot work or people that are, uh, be, they, they became refugees because of their faith, the Iraqi Christians, the Syrian Christians, that they fled the war and they're suffering so much in now they don't have the help of international organizations. They don't have the help of uh, UN. And they are at, at their houses under a very restrict curfew that they cannot even sometimes go to the streets. So can you imagine these people? Like uh, we, are, we have heard so many cases of people that are literally starving, especially those that are refugees or immigrants because they don't have access to anything. So we need to contribute. And the challenge is to... Like go to a VOM website and, and ways to, uh, to contribute and participate because the Bible is so clear. If one part of the body suffers, all the rest suffers together. So it's the time for us to suffer together with this church that is being persecuted here. Okay. Now on a more personal note, what, what impact has persecution had on you and your family in the Middle East? Because you have your whole family there with you. You have a young, growing family. How has persecution impacted you guys? Yeah, we we had some cases uh, ourselves through the years. I would say I'm already filed in a few countries, uh, specifically the country that we serve today. They have a case on, on me, and uh, personally, praise God, I was not taken to be interrogated yet, but they brought already all my workers missionaries and locals uh, to be interrogated and in some of them uh, they made specific questions about me and my family and I cannot um, be doing some of the things I was doing before they control even how I transfer money so my name is already kind of blacklisted because of the ministry I do so I cannot receive money here on my own name because the government is trying to control kind of uh, my ministry and what I do. But uh, I would say there were moments that I had to put myself in danger. There were times in Syria that I, I saw, for example, a bomb exploding very close to me. I have uh, this recorded. I, I was in a place that I could hear the shooting. Also, I was sleeping and I was, uh, I was, I awoke, I, I, 
I was awake suddenly with the uh, sounds of the shooting. I was also in Iraq a few times in the middle of the conflict, and once I was escorted by the militias. And and these in these moments, as I was making the decisions to go to these places, uh, it was hard for me, for my family, to put ourselves in in this type of situation. But uh, we are trusting God is in control and He is leading us. And God gave me an amazing wife and, and kids that are participating in the ministry and praying constantly for not only what I do, but also for their own safety and the safety of the family. So I would say today we are in a sensitive uh, moment and situation, uh, specifically with uh, the visa. Um, I had the visa once denied before because of the ministry I do. And in this moment right now, uh, it's been already almost uh, five months that the secret police is holding my papers and unfortunately without no answer. So this is something that you that are listening to us now, you can pray because of the ministry that we do. Unfortunately, the secret police uh, is always on us and controlling what, um, what we do. And in this sense, they are holding right now my visa, so pray for that. Has this, has this shaped the way you conduct your ministry with all of these pressures around you? Definitely. Uh, we have an escape plan um, in the case that um, maybe someone come to arrest me. Um, we have also uh, several um, procedures that we adopted as a family in the case that they bring me to be interrogated. So in, in terms of taking computers and cell phones and, and we, we are very careful with uh, information because we don't know what can happen. Also uh, regarding um, maybe the region here, if we are doing work outside and, and something happen, happens, we have also all types of plans for the family. Let's say I'm in Mosul doing a ministry and a militia uh, kidnaps me. That could happen. Um, we have a plan for the family in this case. We have several people outside, uh, pastors and uh, psychologists, psychiatrists and organizations that we developed plans in the case of if anything happens. Uh, we have retreat plans, like for example, if the family needs to, if something happens with me and the family needs to leave the country and they need to go somewhere, we have already places that they can stay, people that will take care of them. So we need to be ready for, for these things. Unfortunately, um, for people that are, I would say, in the front line like us here, um, we have to be ready for that. And, and I would say the most difficult thing, Tony, is uh, as I'm, uh, I have a kid one year, six months, I have another seven, and I have a, a young girl, 21. Like we, for our children, um, uh, my wife, she's a missionary also for many years, very experienced one. So she is more uh, comfortable in dealing even with these sensitive topics. But for the children, it's always, always hard. So we, we always have to kind of be preparing them for the day this could happen. And it could. Um, and this is the most difficult part. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I've, I've had first-hand experience of some of your challenges, so, you know, I, I fully understand, but it's always, 
you know, when, when people ask why you do what you do, I mean, that is your calling. There's no option. We do what we do. And we prepare ourselves for these sorts of things. So I fully understand it. And thank you for sharing something so personal. How big a role does the Bible and prayer play in your ministry? Yeah, I would say it's, it's uh, what makes me to be standing still right now. <laughs> uh, first, really, like I'm, I developed um, this um, uh, routine of Bible reading. So I like to do it early morning. So for me, it's, it's how I start my day, even before doing anything else, even breakfast or any type of thing. So I will spend my time reading my Bible. I, I like to do it every day. And I, I had the privilege of reading sometimes already. So I'm always changing the uh, language I'm reading and I'm always changing the type of Bible I'm reading. To, right now I'm reading a chronological Bible. So I try to every day do it and then I'm trying to every day learn through different ways and regarding prayer I do have this small time when I'm doing this Bible reading that I will pray but my wife and I when she wakes up and or our kids and then we'll have breakfast together my wife and I will have also a personal prayer time together and then with the two of us and then as a family we do pray all together every day Usually we do it in the evening and at uh, uh, meals periods. And then every Friday we have a service. So as a family, we gather together and we worship the God. God. We, we read a text and we share a little devotional together and then we pray. So every Friday we do it as a family. That's how we survive here. And I would say this is the most important thing. There were so many difficult moments because of finances, because of persecution, because of conflicts of every type, uh, even like uh, to make decisions, like some of the decisions I've made, always God spoke to me uh, through, through his word. Like, for example, to start ministry in Syria, I wanted so badly to start ministry in Syria, but it was only after three years of praying and, and Bible reading and asking God, give me, give me an oppor uh, this opportunity that he finally answered, go. So it's, it's always like this. So many big decisions of our lives got answered through, through Bible verses or sometimes in yeah. the So it's very important. Yeah. Even to come to Middle East, God gave us a, a Bible verse that kind of led, led us to, to come to the Middle East. Yeah. So what is it like, let's talk pre-COVID-19 restrictions. What does a typical day look like in your ministry? Wonderful. So here, specifically in Jordan, we have uh, 12 projects going on. So I would wake up, as I said, early morning. I would have my devotion. Then I would run. I like to run and walk early morning. Usually I, I will be awake like at 5. And then uh, we would have this time as a family. I would take my son to school. And then I would go to church. Every day we have as a team a devotion from 9 to 10. So we would gather all the 40 between Arabs and missionaries all the 40 workers all together. Sometimes we would have like 10 nationalities every day there, plus volunteers. We would pray and then we would study a little verse of the Bible and then we would have a team meeting, discuss some quick things, and then everyone would go to their projects. Some would go to the women's center, work with the ladies, outreaching them through the different activities. Some would go to the kids program. We have the mini school and the 
kids uh, kindergarten. Some would go to the recycling project. Some would go to the football field for the football project. Some would go on visits, going to their houses. And I would be kind of with the leaders, uh, just uh, organizing and dealing with all the logistics of the different projects. And, uh, and this would be from Monday to Thursday and then Saturday. Friday would be our day off and Sunday would be focusing on church. Every day we have services here, uh, Tony. So Monday I would be leading the international service. Then we have Tuesday youth service, Wednesday Bible study, Thursday morning woman ministry, and then Thursday evening uh, mm-hmm. the Iraqi service for the Iraqi yeah. Iraq, Christian refugees, uh, Friday uh, Egyptians, Saturday uh, teenagers, and then the prayer meeting, and then Sunday morning the, the Bible school for children, and Sunday evening our international like Arab meeting with everyone. So that's that would be kind of our ministry. But as I travel a lot through the region, Sometimes my day, days would be traveling. Uh, last November, I was um, uh, doing some things in Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. And I, I, I was with two volunteers, missionaries, that they joined me in uh, some of these trips. And I remember it, it, we woke up in, the, in Damascus in Syria. We had breakfast there. Then we drove to, to Jordan, and I had lunch in my house here. In, with my family, and then I went to the airport in late, late afternoon, and I flew to Iraq, and I had dinner in Iraq. So on that day, I had uh, I woke up in Syria, had lunch in Jordan, and had dinner in Iraq. So some of the days are like that. I will be traveling a lot and uh, doing the ministry here in the region. What are the biggest needs you have in your ministry today? Yeah, wow. Um, I still believe even that the window is closing in terms of openness in regarding persecution. Things are closing down, as I said. I believe one of the major things that we need is still, it is people. Um, we have a guest house that we receive volunteers and we receive so many volunteers and some of them stayed. Some of our full-time workers today are people that came here to visit us and decided to stay. And I still believe the major thing that we need is people. The Middle East need uh, faithful brothers and sisters that they could come here, join churches and uh, the missionary work happening in the region here to outreach people here. It's the time for us to keep coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to this area. So uh, we need people. We have projects here that I would, I would be so happy to see Australians. Maybe, for example, our uh, kids program and our women's center, we are desperate for English teachers. So I would be so happy to have one Australian English teacher serving with us here. I, I believe we need people as it's still a major thing. God is still at work and uh, he's, out, he's reaching the hearts of Muslims and uh, nominal Christians here all over the region. But still, we need workers. That we need workers. That's one one of the major things. So I pray that God can keep um, awakening the Australian church to send more people here. Second, of course, I would say finances are always a struggle. Our God, He He has all the resources. But it's interesting that um, Jesus He used the the illustration of the birds. He said, "Look to the birds." Like, um, yes. And when we look to the birds, if you see, if you, if you go to a, a, maybe a National Geographic documentary about the birds, 
you see that the birds, they spend more than 70% of their time looking for the, the food. So the food is there, but um, people, they, they need to participate in this sense. And uh, as a ministry here, we need, the, we need this food. We need the support coming to be able to support refugee families, to be able to support Christians that are being persecuted and they had to, to go through so many different challenges and they are going through today and they, they are in desperate need uh, to be able to run the projects and to be able to run this um, outreach ministry that we do here and to see, like I, I personally baptized 130 people that I put my hands, 30 of them Muslim converts, and to see this type of fruit, we need people to be supporting us. So we need people to be contributing, to be contributing to VOM projects and everything that is being done to help persecuted Christians here and our ministry in front line to be happening. And of course, at the end, uh, people that can pray. I said this before and I would say it again. Prayer is so important, but a conscious prayer, not just a general prayer. People that they pray, but they 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 understand. Like uh, the text says there in um, in Hebrews, um, it's it's the idea that to for us to feel imprisoned or uh, mistreated with those that are being imprisoned or mistreated. Not to just pray in general, but to put ourselves in their shoes. And in this sense, people need to understand better what persecution is here and to pray with uh, an understanding. Thank you, Homero, for sharing your thoughts, experiences, and your challenges. You know, for, for me and for us at Voice of the Martyrs Australia, it's an absolute privilege to partner with you and to be some sort of help and support in the ministry that you have there, working with persecuted Christians. So uh, thank you for the privilege. Uh, we will continue to pray for your ministry and we'll continue to support your ministry. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to chat to you. Thank you so much, Tony. And I appreciate everyone that is listening to this. And I pray that God keep using all of you and blessing you in the middle of this crisis. They're also protecting you, Tony, all the family that I have there in VOM Australia. And I hope one day I can uh, finally uh, see some kangaroos and also see my brothers and sisters there in Australia. So God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted.